Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series 7. In the book of Revelation, John records Jesus' message to seven churches, speaking to them words of rebuke, exhortation, and encouragement. Though these letters were written in the first century, Jesus is still speaking through them to us today. Today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. You can follow along in the back of the booklet there. It's got the whole passage and it'll make it easy for you to follow along. In a couple weeks we'll have them back up on the screens here. I'll be using the, uh, this is the New International Version from uh, 1984 uh, that I'll be using. To hear now the word of the sovereign God. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Almost 100 years ago, uh, actually a little over 100 years ago, a young man named J. Gresham Machen who was an American who had been raised in the faith. He was actually raised up in the area of Baltimore. He had gone to seminary at Princeton and then gone over to Germany to complete his studies. And while he was studying in Germany and he was coming into contact with some of the latest, most fashionable ideas in theology, Machen found his faith in crisis. And he was writing back home to his family, was very worried about him because he was no longer sure he even believed in the God of Scripture and the things that he had always believed. But during this time, he wrestled through and he came to actually see that the Bible was true. And he rejected what was becoming known as liberalism. And in fact, Machen became one of the greatest scholars. His work on the virgin birth of Christ is still considered probably one of the greatest writings regarding that, even though it's 100 years later. And Machen came back and taught Greek and other subjects up at Princeton Theological Seminary, was one of the leading forces there. But over time, the more liberal forces there forced Machen out of Princeton. They tried to have him defrocked for holding on to an orthodox faith. 
He actually went right across the river into Philadelphia. He founded what is now known as Westminster Theological Seminary. And during this time, Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And in this book, he examined several major doctrines where he said, these are the things that, are, that are, we're arguing over here. They are things like, what is the nature of God? Who is God? And who is man? And what is the nature of man? What is the Bible? Is the Bible true? Who is Christ? Was Christ actually raised from the dead? Was he born of the Virgin Mary? Are there actually such things as miracles? And how is one saved? So Machen said, these are not minor issues. This is the heart and core of the faith. And in fact, Machen's point in the book, if you can tell from the title, it's Christianity and Liberalism. And Machen said, there are people who are arguing that this is simply a different form of Christianity. That's not true. It's a different religion altogether. It is not the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And he warned that the folks who were embracing this, where they were going to end up in their faith, Machen predicted was going to be with a dead church that was going to be losing people, that they were going to increasingly abandon the Orthodox Christian faith. It was going to lead to problems in them embracing immorality and all kinds of things. Machen unfortunately died in 1929, but the amazing thing was everything J. Gresham Machen predicted has come to pass. He was a prophet in his own day. And I bring him up because we're going to see today the church in Thyatira is in a very similar place. There's a progression in these letters, and the church in Thyatira is in that place. So let's take a look at this. Jesus is speaking to his church in Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is not a city you or I would normally have heard of. It's about 45 miles southeast of Pergamum, where we talked about last week. These are all in Turkey, okay? Turkey over uh, in that area, modern-day Turkey. Uh, per, uh, it was inland, however. All the others were kind of up towards the coast. This one was further inland, and it was not as large or important as either Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum. It was a less important city. But one thing that was known about uh, Thyatira is it had flourishing trade guilds, including a guild that traded in bronze. That was an important guild there. It's also where, if you remember in Acts chapter 16, when Paul was in the area and going to, to go over towards Europe on one of his missionary journeys, he met a woman named Lydia who was a trader in purple dye and cloth. Lydia is from Thyatira. That's actually where she's from. And she is representative of what goes on in the city. They were known for their trade and all of their guilds. The issue and how that affects us in reading this letter is the guilds had feasts almost monthly. They were usually once a month dedicated to whoever their, their patron pagan deity was. Each guild had its own deity. And so if you were part of this profession in your town and you wanted to be part of the guild, you were expected to come to these pagan festivals once a month to celebrate whether it was Apollos or whoever your deity was. And very often Apollo was one of the major deities there and he was known as the son of Zeus, the son of God, along with the emperor who was known as the son of Zeus as well. So this is what we know about Thyatira. And so there is great pressure for Christians because the major economic force in the city is trade 
And to be involved in trade, you have to be part of the trade guilds. And to be part of the trade guilds, you have to participate in these pagan feasts and festivals once a month. And if you are not willing to do so, there's going to be pressure and there are going to be problems. So how will the church at Thyatira respond? Well, Jesus speaks, and interestingly in this letter, you know, every letter begins with a vision of who Jesus is and Jesus' self-declaration. And in this one, he says, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Well, this is stressing the deity of Christ again, as we see in every letter. But interestingly, this is the only time in the entire book of Revelation that the phrase Son of God appears. Nowhere else, not even when Jesus returns and no other place does he use the designation Son of God, which of course stresses his deity, but it's also in relation to Thyatira where one of your major deities is Apollo who claims to be the son of the high God, who claims to be the son of Zeus. Well, the one who's speaking to you is actually the son of God. And I'm going to be speaking to you. It's not Apollo, nor is it the emperor. It's I who am the son of God. And in fact, this is going to be picked up at the end. There was that little quote about the rod smashing the pottery. That's out of Psalm 2, which is the messianic psalm, which is the installment of the Messiah as the Son of God and the ruler over all the nations. So it's kind of at the beginning, and it's going to come back at the end, this reference to Jesus being the Son of God. And notice he says, I've got eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze, both of those are appropriate to Thyatira because they're going to be using fire and they're going to be making bronze, and this is the part of the vision. But the eyes like fire are obviously, we're going to see, this means I'm the son of God and I have a piercing gaze. I see the truth. I see and I know all things, and my vision is true and it is accurate. The only other time that phrase is going to be used in Revelation. Jesus having eyes like fire is in Revelation 19, where he's riding back on the horse to bring judgment to the whole world. So as we saw with Pergamum last week, these aren't necessarily the most comforting visions for Thyatira at the beginning. It is an awesome picture of Jesus, but it is Jesus who in many ways is a judge. And it's telling us right from the beginning that the one who speaks to the church is the sovereign one who sees everything, and before whom nothing is hidden. And so what does he have to say to his church? Well, he begins, as he does in almost every letter, with a word of praise. And the word of praise here is for growing good works. In Revelation 2.19, he says that phrase, I know, that he does every one of them. Here's what I know about you. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. And so he says, I'm praising you for your good works. You have good works. And they are good works of love and faith and service. That's the word from which we get our word deacon, ministry. And you are persevering. And you are actually doing more than you did before. Now this phrase, if we've been studying these letters, should bring to mind that Thyatira is being cast as the opposite of Ephesus, the first letter. You remember, Jesus began with Ephesus and said, I know your deeds, and I'm pleased with your deeds. But here's the problem. Your love has grown cold, and you're, you're not doing what you did at first. Well, here, deeds of love, uh, the, the words deeds, the words love, and the word perseverance occur in both the letter to Ephesus and to the letter to Thyatira. Ephesus, however, is shrinking in love's deeds, while Thyatira 
is growing in love's deeds. Ephesus is rebuked and commanded to do the deeds of love again. Your love is growing cold, so you begin, your way back to that is by doing the deeds of love and ministry. But Thyatira, on the other hand, is commended because you are doing those deeds. You are, you're actually growing. You're doing more than you did before. So Thyatira, we understand, is a church that is full of deeds of love and ministry, and they're actually doing more of this than they've ever done before. Thyatira was a place that was doing the works that Jesus would call a church to do. And that's good. However, this is the longest of the seven letters, and the rest of the letters not so good. Jesus turns then in verse 20, and we get that phrase that we've seen a couple of times, nevertheless, or but, it's a very strong adversative word in Greek, I have this against you. We heard the same phrase to Ephesus. We heard it the same way last week to Pergamum. And here it is to Thyatira again. There's a problem. There's something I've got against you in spite of your growing love and good deeds. And here's what it is. What I have against you is you tolerate false teaching. Your deeds are good but you are tolerating false teaching. And that word tolerate oftentimes can be translated as well, you permit it. You're allowing false teaching in your midst. You think that that makes you tolerant. Well, I am telling you it is wrong. And so this completes the picture that Thyatira is the opposite of Ephesus in every way. Regarding deeds of love, Ephesus is shrinking, Thyatira is growing. However, testing and rejecting false teachers, Ephesus is commended by Jesus that they are doing that well and continuing to grow in that. Thyatira is rebuked because they are not doing that. They are allowing false teachers in their midst in the name of tolerance, which is exactly what J. Gresham Machen was saying 100 years ago to the church. You're doing good deeds. You're, you're sending people all over the place to care for the poor and to open up medical missions. The problem is you're sending people out who don't even know the gospel. You are tolerating false teaching. In the name of being tolerant, you've lost the gospel. You don't even understand who we are and what we are called to do. And so Jesus is calling the church to grow in deeds of love, but at the same time you have to test and reject any false teaching that is there in your midst. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Problem is Ephesus was good at one thing and bad at another. Thyatira was just good and bad at the opposite things. Now, what is the particular false teaching? Well, he tells us in verse 20 again, uh, he says that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a false prophet, and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now again, if we've been here for the series, last week we saw same two issues. Idolatry and sexual immorality were brought up last week. And so I'm not going to go over those all again. You can tune into last week's teachings if you want to hear that. And I will remind us just briefly that those two are often related in Scripture. Remember last week I showed a whole bunch of times, this isn't just in the book of Revelation, idolatry and sexual immorality are related to one another over and over and over again. And that's because the relationship between sexual immorality and idolatry, not necessarily a little wooden God, but 
changing the conception of who God is at its core and changing so that God is no longer the God of Scripture. Idolatry and sexual immorality are intimately related to one another and their relationship is actually symbiotic. They feed one another. Where there is idolatry, it will almost always lead to sexual immorality. And where there is sexual immorality, it will always feed back into idolatry. Because to engage in the one is going to open you to the other. And to justify the immorality, you're going to change your conception of who God is. And so the cultural ideas that are facing the church in Thyatira regarding God and regarding tolerance for understandings of who God is and what the truth is, and tolerance regarding morality and therefore sexual immorality. That posed a major problem for the church in the first century. But isn't it good to know we don't have those problems today? The, the church is not in a culture that would in any way ask us to be tolerant of evil, to change our conception of God, and to embrace sexual immorality. That's just then, right? I mean, I read this and look at it, and it's like this could have been written to Bay Ridge Christian Church today. The same exact issues. Now, this week, unlike last week, you remember in Pergamum, it was Balaam was the false prophet, and prophet. And we saw how he was picked because he exactly fit that. His, his work in the Old Testament was to seduce Israel by sexual immorality, which led to idolatry. Well, who's this Jezebel? She is the Sidonian wife, she's from the town of Sidon, of Ahab the king. You can read about her in 1 Kings. And what we know about Jezebel, these are some of the things we're told. She lured King Ahab and all of Israel into idolatry. In 1 Kings 16, 31 to 33, you can read the summary that that's what she did. As soon as she got there, she started pulling them away from Yahweh into idolatry. In fact, she supported 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. They ate at her table, which means she provided food for them. That's the ones that Elijah had his famous confrontation with. She was supporting and working with them and feeding them and caring for them. So she not only was allowing idolatry and encouraging, she was basically actually footing the bill for it. Thirdly, she, that was in 1 Kings 18, 19, you can see that. We're told she actually persecuted and killed the prophets of Yahweh. It's not just that she did idolatry and got her husband to do idolatry and then got others. She supported the idolatry, Baal and Asherah, and then she started persecuting the followers of Yahweh. That's in 1 Kings 18, 3 and 4. And the summary for her that's given in 1 Samuel 21, 25, and 26 is this. Jezebel urged Ahab to sell himself to do more evil than anybody else had ever done in Israel. That was her role. That's what she's known for in the Old Testament. She urged him on, and the phrase is, he sold himself to do evil. That's who Ahab became, and this was done at the instigation of his wife Jezebel. Now, the interesting thing is, we're told here that this modern-day prophetess who uh, Jesus is referring to as Jezebel, and that's probably not her name. He's using the example from the Old Testament. But she's encouraging idolatry and immorality. Now, we know Jezebel clearly encouraged idolatry. I just gave you a whole bunch of things. The interesting thing is, 
Nowhere does it directly say anything about Jezebel and immorality in the Old Testament. It's too technical and I won't go into it. Actually, in 2 Kings 9.22, when she's about to be killed, later on, Jehu throws in and actually uses the word for immorality, which none of your English translations will, will actually put in there. They'll call it idolatry uh, and witchcraft is what it'll say. The actual word in the Hebrew was immorality. I not sure exactly why they translate it that way, and it's always translated immorality or else. But nonetheless, even with that, we know that Jezebel did idolatry. There's not really a record of her with immorality. But we do know that if you encourage idolatry in the first century and you're going to go to these idol feasts, they oftentimes included sexual sin. But with that being said, I think the reason that this is Jezebel rather than Balaam is because the the immorality that is in view here is mainly being used as a metaphor for the idolatry, for unfaithfulness to God. It's not that there's no sexual sin involved, but the real idea here, contrary to Pergamum, in Pergamum it was literal sexual immorality. Here, sexual immorality is being used as a metaphor for extreme unfaithfulness to God. Now, why do I say that? Number one, again, uh, unlike Balaam, Immorality is not really part of the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament. I mean, terrible things are said about Jezebel, but nowhere do they really record that she was involved in immorality. Secondly, um, if you notice here, the terms that are used in Revelation 2, 20 to 23 uh, seem to imply that immorality is a metaphor. In verse 21, Jesus says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality. So it seemed to be saying that this woman who's a prophetess in the church is behaving in a sexually immoral fashion. It's questionable whether a leader would really would be doing that. But even more than that, if you notice in verse 22, it speaks of those who commit adultery with her. In the early church, there were people who were arguing, well, look, you can go down and you can participate in the sexual immorality that goes on in the temple, but nobody was saying that adultery was okay. But apparently in this phrase, all kinds of people in the church are committing adultery with this prophetess. Unless she's trying to convince them all that, that an orgy is okay or something, that doesn't seem to be what would happen. Thirdly, if you notice in verse 23, it says that those who commit adultery with her will suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Well, if they're committing adultery with her, what should they first repent of? Their own sin. Except for it doesn't say anything about that. It says you've got to repent of her ways, which would seem to make this seem less like physical sexual adultery and immorality and more like unfaithfulness to God. And then finally, notice in verse 23, I'm going to strike her children dead which doesn't seem to be a typical penalty that would come for an adulteress, I will punish the children. But if the children are spiritual children who are embracing her teaching, then that makes perfect sense. And so all of these seem to indicate that uh, the, what we're talking about here is followers rather than actual sexually immoral people within the church. That was the problem in Pergamum that we talked about last week. And it surely could be related to it here but the primary thing is it's being used to refer to unfaithfulness to God. Now that seems strange to us, but it's a common metaphor in the Old Testament. Over and over again. For example, I'll just give one scripture. In Jeremiah 3, uh, I'll just read verses 6 and 9. You could read the whole passage goes through this. 
But we're told during the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. And in verse 9, he continues, Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. What is the stone and wood that is under every spreading tree? It's idols. Israel has set up high places and is doing idolatry, but Yahweh says that is adultery. And in fact, this is the famous passage where God said, so I gave her a certificate of divorce. And the problem was her sister Judah should have looked and seen, and she's become unfaithful just like Israel. She too has embraced idolatry, and now God's going to have to bring judgment on her by the hand of Babylon. And so this is a common metaphor. You can read through it in Hosea and many prophets. Adultery was used as a way to reference idolatry. You have changed who I am, and that is immorality. Now, um, it's also true that if you look in the book of Revelation, uh, immorality is almost always tied to spiritual unfaithfulness rather than actual sexual immorality. The only places in general where adultery means adultery and immorality means immorality is if there's a whole list of liars and thieves and adulterers and sexually immoral people. Well, it means those things literally there. But the rest of the time, there's a famous character later on in the book of Revelation, the whore or harlot of Babylon, who commits adultery with all the kings of the earth. But it's clear that the adultery is not literal physical. It's actually a spiritual adultery that's going on. And so when you take all of this together, what it seems is that the adultery, the immorality that's being spoken of is a false sense of tolerance that is allowing false teaching, that is causing the faith of the church to be compromised, and the church has therefore become an unfaithful bride to Jesus. She's no longer faithful to him. She's lost her grip on the gospel. And so actually, this is a warning because Thyatira is further gone than Pergamum. It's actually progressed beyond the point in Pergamum. So Jesus gives a word of judgment and warning in verses 21 to 23, where he says that he's given Jezebel time to repent, uh, and she has refused, and she's now going to be judged in accord with her sin. So notice the NIV as that she's cast on a bed of suffering. It literally just says, I'm going to throw her into the bed. It doesn't actually even say bed of suffering, which, of course, if she was playing the harlot, she would do her, her sins in the bed. And so God says, then I will judge her there in a bed. Secondly, her lovers will be judged with her. They're going to suffer along with her. Her children, who are the children of adultery, are going to die with her. So the, the terms are cast in terms of her sin. She has led the people into this spiritual adultery, and I gave her time to repent, and she refused. And so actually, in a scary thing, God does not actually even call for Jezebel to repent here. Jesus says, I've already given her all the time she needed. And she refused to repent, and the day for repentance is past for Jezebel. And this is showing us that churches that tolerate, again, I, whenever I say tolerate today, this is not true tolerance. This is false tolerance. Churches that tolerate false teachings and idolatry and immorality suffer the judgment of a slow 
painful death. That's exactly what happens. It's what was being threatened to Jezebel, and it's what was being threatened to the church at Thyatira. And this is a warning to all of the churches because Jesus says that when I do this, all of the churches are going to know that I am the one who searches the hearts and minds, and I am looking, and I am paying attention. And so it's a warning not just to Thyatira, it's a warning to other churches, pay attention. When a church goes down this path and tolerates false teaching, you can know where it ends up. It always does, and I am speaking this to all of the churches. So it, Jesus does not abide sin or unfaithfulness, and if we do, Jesus says, then you're going to find yourself dying as a vibrant congregation. Now, he gives a brief word of encouragement to the faithful, and he tells them that, look, all I'm asking you to do is hold on to what you have. In other words, what he's getting to there in verses 24 and 25 is that you're the few who don't hold to her teaching, which is another problem is it seems like more, more people than in Pergamum have embraced this false teaching. And so Jesus says, well, there's some of you that haven't. So the rest of you that have not, here's what I'm giving you. I'm not trying to lay extra burdens on. I'm not asking you to fix all the problems. I'm just telling you, hold on to what you have. You hold on to the truth. You hold on to walking in my ways. Do not give in to these other things. Don't be seduced by Satan's so-called deep secrets, and I'm not calling you to fix the problem. I'm calling you to be faithful. And that's a word for the church and to recognize because when you live in the midst of a culture that has embraced this tolerance, has embraced all this, Jesus' call is not. We're not going to be asked on the final day, did you fix all of the problems? We're going to be asked, were you faithful? Did you hold to my word or did you abandon my teaching to follow Jezebel, to follow Balaam, to follow these other things? And so Jesus actually gives a word of reward then to the overcomers. And he says, if you're doing it, and he gives a quote from Psalm 2, where the Messiah is being installed in king. And what Jesus is saying is, look, I understand if you refuse to compromise, if you don't follow Jezebel, I recognize that the powers that be there in Thyatira are going to punish you and they are going to cast you off and they are going to set you aside and you are going to seem to lose everything. It's going to seem that you lose all power that you had. What I am telling you is if you are faithful to me, I'm installed as the king. And as the king, I get to choose who rules with me. And those who are faithful will rule with me. I will invite you to sit down on my throne as I sit on my father's throne, and you will actually be the ones who are in charge. So it may look like in the short term that if you are faithful, you lose everything. I am telling you, you actually gain everything. But if you are unfaithful and you compromise in the short term, it may seem like you've gained something. You've actually lost everything. So do not give in, do not be unfaithful. I see, my blazing eyes see, and I will reward my servants. So now what does this mean for us? Let's turn to applying the word quickly. I couldn't figure out any way that this word about tolerance would apply to us in our culture today. I mean, it's a major issue in the first century, and it is a major issue today. It is not hard to figure out how this applies in our culture. 
external voices in that century and today called the church to compromise and embrace idolatry and sexual immorality of the surrounding culture. They said, look, you can have your Jesus, just admit that he's part of a pantheon of gods. You can't say he's unique. You can't say he's the only way of salvation. And if you're going to do that, then you're going to have problems. All we're saying is you just have to be part of the bigger thing that's going on here. And by the way, the bigger thing that's going on here includes all kinds of sexual behavior that you all don't seem to like. Well, you need to get with the program. And if you do, we will reward you for doing that. And if you do not, you're going to find out just how tolerant we really are. Okay, that's what was going on then. And it led to the disease of compromise in Pergamum. You remember, Pergamum withstood direct persecution, but then through the back door of this compromise, it led to a disease for them. But what's happened is that disease is metastasized in Thyatira. And what was a problem in Pergamum is deadly in Thyatira. And I'd say it, we're going to see next week in Sardis has left where Jesus says, you're, you're dead. You're dead. And so this is the, the process that was going on. And by compromising with Jezebel, the entire church was being overrun with idolatry. They were being overrun by a false gospel. They were being overrun by an increasing embrace of the immorality of the surrounding culture. Now, again, I can go back 100 years and we could stand there with J. Gresham Machen and he warned all of this was what was going to come. With the people who initially were just saying, no, we're just saying we need to be open to other ideas. And Machen said those other ideas completely gut the gospel. And if you are open to those ideas, if you are tolerant of those ideas, you're not, in, you're not shifting the Christian faith a little bit. You've completely abandoned the Christian faith. And they all said, oh, you're making too much of this. We would never, and Machen said, Here's where you're going to go. Oh, we would never go there. And if we could raise them all from the dead and have them stand here, he would say, and everything I warned about is precisely what happened. We have seen the process in our day as, quote unquote, liberal churches, in the name of tolerance, accepted false teaching first, things that began more and more to compromise the heart of the church. The gospel is ultimately denied. It eventually gave way to immorality and those churches are in a death spiral. And they wanna try and figure out how they can change their decor on the building or whatever and attract people. And they can't because they've lost the gospel. And so you even end up with a few years ago in one of our denominations, one of the main leaders of the denomination wrote an entire book that basically went through the Apostles' Creed and said how every article of the Apostles' Creed was wrong and the man was not defrocked. And when you do that, the church is dead. The church is dead. You can't be salt to a culture if you are simply like the culture. And so those who would compromise in order to be relevant, because that was always the call. You gotta be relevant, you gotta understand we're, we're in the beginning of the 20th century, things have changed. And if you don't do this, you'll die. And what Machen was saying is, no, if you do that, you're going to die. And guess what? The only, all of the religions who compromised with Rome, how many of them survived? 
None. They're no longer here. It was the one who stood up and said, we're not going to compromise with that. That's the only one that's still a vibrant, living faith today. And so those who compromise in order to be relevant and in the name of tolerance, allow false teaching, embrace immorality, find themselves utterly irrelevant. And then the strange thing in the end is, guess who becomes intolerant? Because if you're in one of those groups now and you stand up and you hold to the Orthodox faith, you're no longer welcome. You are now under judgment for holding to what the church has held to for thousands of years. Because so-called tolerance is actually about the most intolerant thing in our world. And so we see this over and over again. Our modern false tolerance will tolerate any belief or any perverse behavior except the belief that there's actually good and evil, right and wrong. This is what God says, and this is not what God says. If you do that, they will not tolerate. And just last night I read a thing where a person came up and said, no, intolerance of what is intolerant is actually tolerance. And I was like, Orwell and Big Brother could not have done doublespeak better. I mean, that's the most nonsensical statement, but it's what goes in our culture constantly. We can be intolerant of that which we deem to be intolerance, which is just a simple way of saying we get to judge what's good and bad and then be mean to those who are bad, which is the same thing everybody has done through all of human history. Okay, but that's the end game where it goes. And we need to understand this is a real issue for us, and it's not an issue about churches out there. This is an issue even for evangelical churches. There are many voices today that are calling for tolerance in the church and questions, and it always begins with, well, does it really matter if there actually was a virgin birth? I'm just asking a question. Yeah, yes, it does matter. And that question is deadly, okay? Because, not, not because I don't like examining things. This has all been examined. It's all, you're not bringing up new questions. You're trying to sound profound. It's the same old garbage. We've already been through this a hundred times. And every time somebody does that, that question was first proposed by Rob Bell a few years ago, who now has completely, utterly abandoned the faith. Brian McLaren, who was a local pastor here, same thing. What starts with, I'm just asking a question. That's all I'm doing is asking a question. And what it ends up with is a denial of key tenets of the faith and an embrace of false doctrines and ideas, and always you can count on it, an embrace of false morality. That's where it always ends up. Now, I want to say real quickly, this is not speaking of how we treat the lost. Okay, when we're talking about this, this is about what goes on inside the church, not not how we treat people who are outside the church and not how we deal with people who are trapped in sin. Those who are inside the church and professing to believe, be believers. You remember in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is rebuking someone who is in immorality there and he said, look, I am not talking about people outside the church. That is not my business. God will deal with that. But when you are in the church 
and you are professing to be a believer, it is now my business. And so if you want to profess to be a believer, here is the gospel, here is the truth, this is how we live. If you are outside the church, Paul says, that's not really my business. That's not what I'm dealing with. Can I go ahead and say that here's the way the evangelical church is today? We are embracing all kinds of craziness inside our doors while we are busy policing everybody outside of our doors. That is exactly backwards. We are not, I'm gonna get in trouble here, but we are not the morality police for America. That's not our job, okay? Not our job. We are, however, within the church to hold people, particularly, please hear me, please do this. Any man stands right here, you better hold him accountable to the word of God. Do not let someone stand here and preach foolishness. I do not care how many people they can pack in here on Sunday. You do not do that. Better to be faithful and 15 people than unfaithful and 15,000. Because Jesus on that day is going to judge faithfulness, not success in numbers. And so this call is not about, don't, don't hear, this is not about us getting out there and we're gonna go out and start doing everything and we're trying to fix the morality of my unbelieving neighbors. I've said this a hundred times, unregenerate people, oddly enough, live like unregenerate people. That's how they live. But if you're going to be in the church and you're going to profess to be a believer, then Jesus has a piercing gaze. And he says, you can't be tolerating Jezebel and you can't be tolerating Balaam. You can't do that. If you're outside the church, here is my only concern with you. My only concern. You need the gospel. You don't need, the only thing you need the law for is to understand your need of the gospel. I am not here to correct your morality if you are outside the church. What you need is the gospel at that point because the gospel is what is central. The deadly thing that Jezebel and Balaam and all the other false prophets offer is you can find who you are, you can find meaning, you can find life, and you don't have to find it in the gospel. And friends, that is a lie. There is no meaning, there is no life apart from the gospel. You were made, you were created to know God and to enjoy God and to love God and to walk with God. And that is where life is. And there are so many people in our culture that are shut off to the gospel because we have not faithfully proclaimed the gospel. We've been more about being the fun police or whatever else in our culture rather than speaking the gospel. And so if someone is lost, that is my only concern. I am, I am not here to correct you on the other stuff. I am here to say what you need is Jesus. This is good news. Your sin is worse than you can imagine. It's not a matter of the things I can pick out and say I don't like. Your sin is deeper and broader and wider and sicker than in your worst nightmare. And Jesus Christ has borne the wrath of God for all of it. I don't stand here as somebody who's saying, well, you got a problem and I don't. I, the person whose sin I know the most is my own. I'm repulsed by my own sin. It's not my job on somebody else, but I am grateful every day for the gospel.
The gospel that has saved me, has redeemed me, has transformed me. And so we live by the gospel. Don't give in to Jezebel and Balaam and believe there's life somewhere else. There is not. You will not find it at the local temple. You will not find it in immorality. You will not find it in money. You will not find it in reputation. Life is found in knowing God. And so two questions and we pray in that. Am I more committed to biblical truth or cultural trends and popularity? Which are we more committed to? Which is Bay Ridge more committed to? Which am I as an individual more committed to? Cultural trends, popularity, biblical truth. Because friends, they are not the same, and in our culture, they're getting further apart. And you, you can't keep your foot in both boats. You can't stretch that far. You gotta make the choice. Another way of asking the same question, am I willing to be considered intolerant to be faithful to Jesus? Because if you're faithful to Jesus today, if you have not been, I'm very surprised, but you're gonna be told you're intolerant. I've had many people tell me how intolerant I am and usually are screaming at me and telling me how I'm such an angry, nasty person, but there's only one person raising their voice and doing all that in the conversation, and that would be them, not me. The only person being intolerant is actually them, not me. They're trying to force me to adopt their way. But that's okay. Am I willing to have the world say, you've done poorly, to hear Jesus say, you've done well? Am I willing to have the world say you are intolerant and have Jesus say you are faithful? This is what the Spirit speaks to the church. So do we hear and do we respond? What we're going to do is we're going to stand together and we're going to pray. That we would be faithful to Jesus now and into the future. Father, we, as your church, want to hear the word of the Spirit. We want to hear and respond. And Lord, we want to be faithful to Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would not be found like some of the churches that we have been studying. Lord, we don't in arrogance judge them. They suffered persecution in ways we have not yet been called to do. But Jesus, we want to hear the voice of the Spirit to the church and we want to obey. So Lord, I pray in the midst of a culture that demands we tolerate everything except for your word, that we embrace everything except for holiness, that we cast our, fa our favor upon everything except your will. Father, I pray we would be found faithful. And Father, I pray in the midst of a culture that would want to scream that we are intolerant. Father, I pray by our attitudes and our actions we would adorn the gospel. I pray we would not sink to a level of returning vile comment for vile comment or, or changing barbs and calling each other names or all that, Father, I pray we would simply be faithful to the gospel. 
Father, I pray that you would renew our vision that, Lord, life is not found in all the other things that are out there. We will not find it in the local bit of idolatry. We will not find it in the latest ideas regarding sexual practices or identity. We will not find it in our money or our reputation. Father, life is found in Christ. Life is found in the gospel. Life is found in knowing and enjoying you forever. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Form us that that would be our desire. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to conclude with a word of benediction. Thanks. I know it's been a long meeting today. We had so much stuff packed in today. But I encourage you to receive a blessing from God and for us to go forth under God's word. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, and power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Go in the blessing of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.